In this episode, we will discuss depictions of death, murder, body horror, assault, transphobia, and general horror unpleasantness. If you have any problems with any of those topics, please take care of yourselves. You can always come back and watch a more appropriate episode at another time. Take care of yourself, first and foremost. We wouldn't want you to uh, experience any harm as a result of our discussions. So please come back to us at another time and be well. Like, I think a lot of horror, fairly or unfairly, has a bit of a reputation as kind of being a schlocky genre. One that's made up, like, I mean... When a lot of American horror staples are by Stephen King, a guy who's known for two things, slamming politicians on Twitter and doing un unholy amounts of cocaine. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And for our second episode in Spooky Month, I had a single creator that I just knew we had to cover for the thrills and chills of it. A mangaka I have been desperately trying to force onto Steph for a few years now, and a collection of his, which is my absolute favorite of his short stories. So today we're going to share our experiences delving into the horrifying wor world of world-renowned writer and artist Junji Ito. And Brooke is correct about this being my first experience with this legendary horror comic creator. So it's been a quite a wild ride from start to finish. You've been a great sport about it, um, especially <laughs> since I was at liberty for choosing the collection we'd be diving into, and I chose the one I personally found had the best collection of shorts on average and would give us quite a lot to talk about. I believe your instincts were correct. Or, well, I assume they are, given that I haven't actually read his other stuff. Uh, because, you know, surely you wouldn't make your choices specifically to torment me. No, never. To be fair, horror is very similar to comedy in being something that is both culturally dependent and highly individualized. It's one of the genres of fiction that can either cater very well with a given audience or completely miss the mark. As a result, many times horror from other cultures can miss as it translates to other places. As always, context is important, but even without that context translating perfectly around the world, the horrifying work of Junji Ito seems to be recognized by audiences and critics alike, and his unique style and presentation has made even his adaptations of other famous horror work, from No Longer Human to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, stand apart from their dozens of other iterations. So, what is it that sets Junji Ito apart? How is it possible that a singular talent has become about as universal as a horror author can be? Also, can Junji Ito construct a story that freaks out Steph? That seems like a less academic question, I have to say. I'm a teacher by day, 
a comic book researcher by night, Steph. I take my amusements during spooky season where I can. Outside of dressing and costume at school, of course. So is it Miss Frizzle or Velma this year? Guess you'll have to wait for the pictures to find out. Hmm. I have my theories. Uh, but before we get any more distracted, let's get into the story behind our enigmatic author. Junji Ito was born on July 31st, 1963, in Sakashita Gifu Prefecture of Japan, with two older sisters. And, like most younger siblings, he made a point of reading every magazine and comic that passed through his older siblings' hands. Ito has reflected that some of his earliest exposure to horror would be to would be to popul- through popular horror magazines at, of the time, such as Kazuo Omezu and Shinichi Koga. Young exposure to horror and growing up in the countryside would give Ito quite a familiarity with what was scary or went bump in the night. One story Ito has shared in interviews dealt with growing up in his family home. The bathroom was at the end of an underground tunnel, and the passage was often filled with noisy spider crickets, which, for anyone who had an experience with using outhouses, can clearly illustrate how a young boy's mind can go wild with the experience. I mean, I've experienced them when I went camping, but do you think it's a really that all that common experience these days, Brooke? I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not you live in certain locations, but yeah, I mean, I've used outhouses. It can't be that rare, right? I mean, like I said, camping. Sure, we'll stick with but- camping. <laughs> Uh, Junji Ito would write and draw manga as a hobby, but he did not pursue it as a career for many years. By 1984, he had a quiet life as a dental technician, but his imagination only grew and his talents only developed, rather obsessively. It's true. While all artists vary in their approaches and attention to detail, it's been well documented that Junji Ito, to this day, can spend hours agonizing over single figures in his art, often digitally redoing brush strokes over and over and over again until he is satisfied with his line work, something much easier today than it was in the 80s when everything was still pen and paper. It wasn't until 1987 that Junji Ito would submit a short story to Japanese horror magazine Gekon Halloween. This is a much more common process in the Japanese comic world than it is in America. We briefly brushed on this topic when we discussed Kabi Nagata and my lesbian experience with loneliness, but now is a great time to explain the process a little better. There are critiques to have of the Japanese manga business, but one thing that is particularly fascinating for us American readers is how it is not a market that has overwhelmingly become a duopoly like the American comic scene. Instead, there are many various press agencies and publishers which have an output of monthly and many times weekly comics. Because of this, many genres in the comic space thrive in Japan where they weren't able to in America or other foreign markets. Want to read action comics? Pick up shonen magazines. Want to read high romance? Pick up shoujo. Want to read about high school sports? Pick up any dozens of sports magazines. Of course, relevant to our interest today, you can also pick up a variety of horror magazines. And as an artist and writer, if you are interested in getting your name out there, 
you will have plenty of opportunity through open submission to magazines, which is not exactly the case in America. Having so many competing comics with such high turnover rates means that there are often open bids in these comic anthologies, looking for young and capable talent to fill page space. So, aspiring mangakas can submit their stories and, hopefully, draw enough attention to themselves to start a promising career. So, finally, by 1987, Junji Ito submits a short story to the horror magazine Gekkon Halloween and... He wins? Well, he gets an honorable mention from horror star creator Kazu Umeza, which felt like more than enough to start Ito on his new passion, since Kazu Umeza is among many of Ito's creative heroes. The short story would actually become the first of a serialized horror story that Junji Ito would become famous for, the eponymous Tomi, whose enigmatic appearance and attractive madness has made her something of a horror monster icon all of her own. This takes us into Ito's work, and the common themes that began to set his work apart from both other horror in Japan and abroad. Most of Ito's work is disconnected with a few exceptions where short stories follow up, up upon each other, or when he releases serialized works like Gyo, Uzukami, and Tomi. Most of Ito's most famous work, and even some of the stories within the longer titles, can be read as self-contained stories. You don't necessarily need a knowledge of Ito's other work, or much of the context of Japan, because it's not reliant on Japanese traditions, monsters, or mythology. While many of the creatures and happenings feel like they are hinged on an established mythology, most of Jun Junji Ito's work is actually established by original ideas. This is probably most apparent by his influences, including Hideshi Hino, Irugawa Ranpo, and H.P. Lovecraft for writing his stories, and H.R. Geiger and Salvador Dali for art. Most of Ito's work with, deals with a universe that is familiar to readers, but broken in some fundamental way. Characters are treated to a cruel world and are not always the architects of their fates by poor decisions or visible flaws, but simply by coincidence of circumstance. They are punished out of proportion for minor infractions or targeted for seemingly no reason at all. It is as if they are marked by a force neither the characters nor the readers can quite comprehend. It's Ito's art style is the perfect embodiment of the concept. His art is beautiful by any standard, and it's very naturalistic and realistic by the standards of manga, or any serialized art, really. Or at the very least, it will begin that way. Brick and I emphasize the dedication Ito has in his artwork because it is essential to the inevitable turn that happens in Ito's work. What starts out as beautiful and believable art begins to devolve across every story, becoming further and further warped and unrecognizable as Junji Ito walks us through the uncanny valley like it's a Saturday walk in the park. Many of the themes that Junji Ito touches on are often common vices experienced by people every day. Envy especially seems to fascinate him and often comes up as a fatal flaw for characters either because of their own envy or the envy they inspire in others. But I think there is a theme that is nearly universal to Ito's work even more than envy, and that is the idea of compulsion. 
The feeling of being compelled toward an action or a person or even a location that defies reason, personality, or history of the person in question. One of the most famous or even viral examples of this work would be the short story of The Enigma of Amigara Fault. It was included as a bonus story in the second volume of Ito's serialized work, Gyo, and became something of a sensation all in its own. The Enigma of Amigari Fault starts simply enough, like so many of Ito's stories do, with a world similar to our own that is changed once an unexplained supernatural event happens. In this case, a fault shift after one of Japan's numerous earthquakes exposes hundreds of holes, each perfectly shaped to the body of individual people. And, slowly, one by one, these people feel drawn to their hole. They shed their clothes and enter the hole, which only continues to draw them forward as it gets smaller and smaller until they no longer can move, still being drawn forward as this shape of their hole changes into unrecognizable dimensions. The horror of your compulsion, or the compulsion of people around you, how we can't understand them and how, with minimal influence, we may not be able to control them anymore either. In recent years, as translations of comics have become more and more popular the world over, Junji Ito has begun to receive acclaim like never before, and he's begun collaborations with other talents who recognize his genius in horror, including Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima. Yeah, I have to say he like um, his backstory of being like the lonely kid in the in the in the wilderness and like big scoop bookie house does sound very Gomiro del Toro to me. Oh, for sure. But Ito's adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein also earned him an Eisner Award in 2019, proving his influence on the American market and the respect he had gained among fellow artists worldwide. It's also worth noting that he married fellow artist Ayako Ish Ishiguro in 2006, who co-stars with him and their cats in a series of semi-autobiographical stories about how utterly in love their family is with their adorable cats, Yon and Mew. It's slightly off-topic since we're all about the horrors right now for Spooky Month, but if you are a cat owner or simply like making fun of the cat owners in your life, you definitely should, will get a kick out of Junji Ito's cat diary, Yon and Mew. Circling back around to Ito's skills with horror and short stories, let's get into the review of Fragments of Horror, the 2015 Viz Media's translation of Mano Kakera. Fragments of Horror is the official translation for a series of Junji Ito shorts stories that were released in serial, serial magazine Numiki Plus from April 13, 2013 to June 2014 a few stories being added to the collection from other releases over the years. The stories included were Futon, Wooden Spirit, Tomio, Red Turtleneck, Gentle Goodbye, Dissection-chan, Blackbird, Megami Nanakuse, and Whispering Woman. Since this is an anthology, we're going to briefly go through each of the short stories and provide our opinions on each with a little back and forth. We'll give a small summary that is spoiler-free, but our discussions will very likely not be spoiler-free. So be warned, we will spoil these seven-year-old stories for you. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so starting from the first of two interconnected stories, we have Futon. A young couple who ran away from home and eloped are already having troubles as Tomio, the husband, has buried himself in his futon and refuses to come out in fear. The wife at the end of her ropes physically and mentally as she tries to keep things together, but it seems Tomio's fears aren't as irrational as she first assumed. A futon as an opening story for this anthology was uh, just, you know, an interesting, like, it starts with something like the dis a loved one's descent into mental illness, commentary about, you know, a wife being expected to, like, do literally everything for a husband, and then it devolves into some really freaky drawings. Yeah, um, I also, one of the reasons I picked this particular collection is because when I was thinking of, like, good openers for, like, drawing someone who hasn't read Junji Ito's stories before and sort of like pulling you into uh the the style of the short stories this is kind of like one of the training wheels of Junji Ito stories like this eases you in just like I kind of uh told you I can't remember when it was but I told you how like every Junji Ito story is all right, I kind of know what's going on here. I recognize these humans and how they're acting. Oh, wait, I wouldn't act that way. Oh, wait, no one would act this way. Oh, no, everything has completely gone off the rails. And I feel like this particular collection, starting off with uh, Futon, kind of does that in story structure. It starts you off with a story that's like, oh, okay, I understand. I, I, I get where the horror is from this. And then slowly, each story just becomes more and more bizarre. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that kind of does that. Yeah, like... This is also, like, I have to say, like, the panel where she finally sees the spirits that he's been talking about is was, like, I don't... It was like if Kirby did horror. Yeah, it really just, was. Like, the, it was like just the sprawl of it, the layers to it, the detail. It was very much a. This is what Jack Kirby would have done if he did horror. If he did this kind of horror. Yeah, like um, I forget uh which fourth world story it was, uh that Kirby did, but it was like the closest he ever got to actual like horror, and it was like showing the full expanse of uh apocalypse for the first time. And it was very much like this, where it was like your eyes don't even know where to go because there's so much bizarre and creepy stuff happening at the same time uh, that you can barely follow it. But it's all, like, you could spend, like, 20 minutes staring at one thing that's happening on the page. But you've got this whole page to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it was really incredible, especially considering, like, I mean, obviously... Obviously, some, I don't, some manga is bigger than others mm -hmm. in formatting, but I do not particularly think of a manga as a particularly space-friendly mm -hmm. media. It, like, it usually is. Like, like so it was, it's very fascinating to see, like, the amount of detail he is cramming into what is normally not a very large space. Like, I have mentioned before, I grew up it with Calvin and Hobbes, and um, Calvin and Hobbes' creator, Bill Watterson, 
has written like very extensively about how his like about his complaints about the fact that as someone who likes to do a lot of detail work he doesn't always get the chance because of how limiting comic formatting can be yeah and it just reminded me a lot of that just the kind of like deep level of detail that he was putting in despite the fact that it it like it is not occupying a large space yeah and um i think sometimes that gets even more amplified uh with manga because um not like you said the formatting of manga is much smaller than american style uh, monthly comics but also um the use of negative space is usually a lot bigger uh in manga because um you're meant to follow the characters through the pages and not necessarily the background. So there might be like one or two panels with detailed backgrounds in them. And then the rest is like a close up of the character. And with Junji Ito, what's so fascinating, what draws your attention so much is that it's that same format, but you really can't point at too many panels, even when they're close up of faces that are backgroundless or lacking detail like it's just not the way um his art works he's very much he's meticulous which is something uh you see in a lot of interviews futon's a good example of that because i'm always reluctant to put too much social commentary on works when the author themselves don't give a lot of leeway towards that like in their interviews and things um and especially when it's somebody who whose work it he has just so many stories that are out there and some of them will kind of contradict each other in messages because he's telling good stories not necessarily thinking uh about a coherent message over all of his works but i do see common themes uh having read a lot of junji ito and i think uh, this collection also kind of shows that um, he has this common theme of uh, not necessarily pointing out uh, what uh, what social pressures there are on the women in his stories, but just showing them, like, just as people. Like, hey, this woman gave up her position with her family and is financially strapped and all this stuff and now she's having to act as like mother and wife to this husband that maybe she didn't even really know that much before they went and eloped and now she's having second guesses and all this stuff which is an interesting touch because you know that isn't necessarily something that would need to add to the horror but if you say are a woman who is experiencing something like that or fierce experiencing something like that that definitely adds to it like a something can happen to my partner who i've given up everything for and now what do i do yeah um i think we've kind of run the gamut on futon yeah it's a pretty simple Unless one you've got something else you want to nope yeah uh so yeah all right. Next in the collection was The Wooden Spirit. A young woman and her divorced father proudly live in their family home, which has recently been named a historical treasure and protected by the Japanese government. 
Soon, a touring architect student named Manami begs to become a renter in their home and soon sweeps father and daughter alike off their feet. Soon after marrying the father, though, Manami begins acting stranger than ever, and soon it's clear that Manami is more in love with the house than her family. Yeah, so uh, this one was weird. <laughs> I, I, this was starting to get into the Uncanny Valley a bit. This isn't even Uncanny Valley. This is just going like this is the equi. This bun. Like, I mean, listen, I have only read this one collection. I cannot say if it is indicative of his soul. The experience I had reading this one felt like getting to the scene in Kill Bill where we spend two minutes with a shot of the bride's feet. It's like, <laughs> oh, we're learning a lot about you right now. Um, not sure how comfortable I am with having this information. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying you don't like tall women? Is that what is that what bothered you? What else is wrong with Minami? Yes, Brooke. <laughs> the, the issue I have with Minami is that she's tall, and definitely not that she spends a good chunk of this story humping the walls. So, um, I this might be the closest we get to needing some sort of cultural context because obviously it's very clear that the like <laughs> history of the house and it's being established as a uh, national treasure is like central to this and how it's kind of almost sexualizing this connection to the past that's unhealthy um but also, I, I think even if you were in Japan, lived with this knowledge uh, in your daily life, and you still read this story, you would still probably have a similar reaction to uh, Steph's. It's uh, very... This is the story where the art devolu uh, devolution that Brooke talked about really comes out in most obvious play to me. Because we are introduced to, uh, we're in, we are introduced to Manami as this very clearly, like, this clearly attractive young woman, drawn in a very specific way. We are clearly, like, you know, like, we are given, it's, and then watching as she kind of gets, the, uh, enters the uncanny valley as the story progresses is, uh, you know, it was very visually uh, distinctive. And it was really interesting to see. Uh, it also just was like, uh, hmm. This, I recognize this as a staple of adult horror, but, like, we, we do see a lot of, uh, this became a theme throughout the story, of seeing the female, the naked female form being a, a D devolving and just becoming something horrifying like which I you know didn't we didn't see that happening with the male form right it's also worth pointing out that um, the house itself was a character and you got a really good feel yes the, the house is definitely a character 
uh, at the start it's a very normal house you feel the layout you can see how they live in it even though it's you know it's this historical monument that they are tasked with preserving but it's also still living uh, with them because they're using it they live inside its walls they um, use the kitchen they are um, they are utilizing the home the way it has been for hundreds of years and it's when it is sort of separated from its uh, its duty as being a home to the family that everything starts to devolve and become monstrous it's no longer their home they're taking care of it's this monster that they can't live in anymore I think it's also interesting because like like in America there are historical homes and homes with historical designations as well but a lot of the time uh, those homes are often become historical places like you know there are people who live in historical homes like homes with the black and gold plaque out front I uh, my ex-girlfriend uh, used to live in one uh, but it was you know it's still kind of it's significantly less common I think in America it's very common in Europe to live in homes that are historical several hundred years old right yeah I mean it's like one of those things you know where you you go around a place in Europe and you see a building that was built in the 1400s and it's a McDonald's so it's like, but yeah, it's like, so seeing this guy, like, you know, so it's interesting coming to this from an American perspective where the historical is, is fetishized a lot mm -hmm. and it is separated from everyday life. So to see, so it is interesting to see that played out a bit in this context, which has its own history and its own culture to it. Yeah, its own it, way of looking at it. It's it's kind of an anxiety that we as Americans would have a harder time relating to because they're fearful that their his, their history is going to become more and more separated from them. And when it does that, they won't be able to live among it anymore. Uh, whereas in America, that's kind of just what happens. <laughs> Uh, we move on and try to forget as soon as possible and every now and then slap a plaque on it. Yeah, pre pre pretty much. But yeah, we're, uh, America's not good at living alongside, like, living with it. I mean, it's part of our part of our whole thing where we, we are very good at distancing ourselves from certain things. Yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword on both occasions. Um, I do think you're definitely bringing up something interesting, uh, especially with Ito's work in this collection about how the feminine form is more quickly associated with this dehumanization and this monsterization than the male form. And as somebody who reads more Junji Ito, I can say that that does tend to be more common, although some of his stories in recent years have done more body horror with the men uh, on sort of equal playing fields. So, I mean, 2013 isn't that that long ago, but it is something that has been evolving over time, especially uh, once you start getting into his Frankenstein and 
no longer human and stuff like that. Which is interesting. Yeah, and it it is interesting, and it is also, uh, and yeah, like I said, this is just like I have read just a handful of samples of his work mm-hmm. now, but it is also something that is also true for a wider horror as a whole. Like the female naked form is is often has certain connotations to it because the female naked form is is viewed in certain ways like there is something to be like how many cultures have some variant of horrifying monster that is naked or scantily clad woman who has like something wrong with her face but her body is still sexy well i mean let's think about what is scarier to 12 year old boys than uh (laughs) sex I mean, I mean, really. And, and boobs. And boobs. And like, boobs. Especially when it's like, I really want this thing, but I'm really scared of this thing. And what if everything tries to kill me afterwards? Yeah, and, you know, that is fair. And also, to continue to try the being fair, uh, censors get a lot more worked up about seeing penises than they do about seeing boobs. Absolutely. So full frontal nudity is a lot... It is a lower rating than full frontal male, full frontal nudity with a penis. I will say that's not quite as true in Japan. Um, Okay. uh, It's actually a lot more common for, like, kid shows to have little dicks and balls all over the place. Uh, Aw. So, that's not... they're different. So it's less... Okay. But you, uh, you're you still yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I it's... definitely know that... From a titillation perspective, yeah, I, I was it, more that, trying to that's say. Because where... I definitely know that Japan has... Japan has a different relationship with nudity and public bathing and, mm-hmm. like, different things are sexualized there. But in the terms of the titillating naked. Yeah, no, totally. The... Fem- the yeah. Because, like, yeah... You're right, like, in Japanese media, you are going to see non-sexualized nudity more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, you can male and female. Yeah, like, certain kids' shows, like, sometimes nudity in Japan is meant to be, like, innocence, not just uh, sexualizations. Like, sometimes it's a symbol of, like, oh, like a child. Like, a child wouldn't sexualize their body. They would just, you know... Everybody knows that cousin or sibling that, like, threw their clothes off and you couldn't keep their clothes on them for, like, two years. Uh, that's that's sometimes I, what it looks like in, in Japan, as opposed to constant sexualization of the bodies. But you are right in this context. I just wanted to throw that in yes. there. Yes, and that is an important context to mention. Like, because, yeah, you're... Because, yes, the... the it is important to acknowledge that I'm coming in with, uh, the, and you are coming in too, but with a little more education than me, with our American cultural and horror taboos right? Uh, to be talking about. But yeah, but for titillation purposes, a titty is rated PG-13, and an erect penis is a higher rating than that. Alright, I think, I think uh, we have gone long enough without making any wood jokes, so... God damn it. 
<laughs> so we can probably move on now. <laughs> Following up on the couple from Futon, Red Turtleneck returns to the couple who have already se separated. But Tomio has desperately returned to his wife. The witch he left her for, rather stupidly, considering the events of Futon, turns out to be an actual witch who collects the heads of her lovers. She ties one of her hairs around Tomio's neck and curses it to enclose around his neck more and more until it decapitates them. Only Tomio's hands holding down his head keep him alive, and soon the witch comes to collect. So, what I like about this is that the first story, Futon, is the closest you could get to the ending being like, oh, it could have been it could have been uh, the fungus, or I'm sorry, the mold uh, that caused them to hallucinate. It wasn't like the horror stuff actually happened. The, ho the real horror was in uh, how the fear that his hallucinations gave him almost killed him. And then uh, a story and a half later, nope, that explanation was wrong. The witch was real. <laughs> Uh, but of the two, I definitely like this one more, I think, because, um, just the scene of, at the beginning of him walking through the fish market <laughs> is so funny on a second reading, <laughs> where he's watching all these fish getting their heads chopped off and he's freaking out while holding his head on his neck. You know, perfect horror stuff. Yeah, honestly, um, what this reminded me of was, like, was a, I never grew up with this one. I always heard of it secondhand, uh, but the story, it, what it really reminded me of was the story of uh, the girl with the green ribbon. Do you know that yes, one? Yes, I love that story. Of course you do. But yeah, like, it really reminded me of a uh, girl with the green ribbon and just general other horror stories I've come across over the years where it's like, you know trying to keep the head on mm -hmm. and it's like hmm this is uh interesting parallels just to a piece of more american horror right. that i that i am familiar with and it was like hmm yeah you uh you sure did fuck up going to the witch I like the the hilarity of him thinking that when he cheated on his newlywed wife uh he thought that he was cursed by the woman he cheated on her with. And then once his wife saved his life, he then went back to that woman because he was like, ah, it was mold. It, it, it yeah. feels both hilariously unbelievable and completely true to life. It really does. It does just feel like one of those things where... It, it, on the one hand, it's like, if anyone I knew did that, I would laugh myself silly. On the other hand, it completely tracks with other things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, like, I, this was a fun little horror story. I'd say I feel like I have less to, like, I feel like I don't have as much to say about this one. Yeah, it was just a good, straightforward, this is horrifying story. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it reminded me a lot of Girl with the Green Ribbon. It was. It had good horror beats. The art was fun. Uh, the twist at the end. Mm-hmm. 
or uh, all the crazy stuff they started doing, like, once the neck was fully separated and, like, they were trying to hold it on, like, just wild, wild imagination in in the best and ho- most horrible way. Oh, yeah, like, clearly this guy uh, clearly has some, some things to get out on paper. It's also, um, I also liked the little bit at the end. We don't usually get, like, uh, with these horror short stories, we don't usually get, like, a wrap-up at the end that, like, ties everything with a bow. But I did like that out of all the stories, they did it with this one, where uh, they were like, by the way, because he was a dick and he, uh, he got this cruel punishment in return... Uh, for the rest of his life, he was mentally scarred to the point that he kept holding his head. <laughs> Which, like... Yeah. Uh, just, it was just fun. It was a fun one. Mm-hmm. It was. It was good. Uh, probably was, I would say, my favorite of these stories. Oh, yeah. It's probably the one that I come back to every Halloween. Uh, just because I love witch stories. And because... Uh, this this one just it just it, it feels like a good horror story, you know. You don't have to it put is. too much thought it, into it. Yep, it was a very quick. It was an easy read compared to some of the others. That is true. It was. Speaking of not so easy reads, the ancient and wealthy Takura family are the center of gentle goodbye. They're not pleased by their newest daughter-in-law, Rico, and treat her like she's not even there, despite her best efforts. The longer Rico lives with them, however, the more of their secrets she learns, including the family's unique ability to pray together after the death of a family member and create what they call an afterimage, a ghost that will stay with them as they gently say their goodbyes and grieve for the next 20 years. Rico is determined to have her own father included in this tradition, but it comes with more complications than she first realized. So this is our first, and I think in this, um, yeah, definitely in this uh, collection is our only true ghost story uh, out of the works. And it's probably the saddest one. (laughs) Yeah, this one was kind of a bit depressing. <laughs> Just a touch. Got. Uh, yeah, so this one was like, it's just, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, kind of looking at like the different, like, just seeing the kind of various psychological effects as well, like, as well as the normal ones you get with ghost stories, like grief and moving on and literal haunting. I think what is especially interesting uh, coming from, again, the Western perspective on ghosts is we're so, and from what I can tell, this is true in Japan as well with their horror stories, but your most ghost stories center around the haunting. Like, why is the ghost still in this place? Why is the ghost choosing to uh, specifically manifest in this way or to these specific people? And for the most of the gentle goodbye, you're thinking, well, that's kind of strange. This is a ghost story, but it's not really showing us the haunting aspect. Like, it's a gentle goodbye. They're saying goodbye to the people. 
until you get to the end and you realize you were watching the haunting the entire time. Uh, which was both devastating and kind of relieving in a way. Yeah, it was a definitely interesting. It was a fun little twist. It was very, very icy dead people. So uh, my question to you, since this was your first time reading it, uh, did you see the twist coming or did you detect that there was something coming like as it went on? You see, um, I did. I detected there was something coming. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it right. Um, I. So what it reminded me of, uh, reminded me of this story, but it also reminded me of a story from something you will know, and that is Buffy season one. <laughs> you remember the girl who turned invisible because everybody ignored her in high school. Yes. I was kind of just thinking, oh, is she going to just, like, vanish because her in-laws won't notice her or, something, or like, won't acknowledge mm. her or something like that. So, yeah, I was looking at, I was, like, th I was looking for something like that. I The idea that she, this was, yeah. Right. I didn't catch, I was wrong. I was going in a different direction than the story was. So, uh, I fell for the fake-out twist, uh, which, like, when they revealed that the sister was a ghost, I was like, oh, there's the twist. Okay, I get it now. So then I was thinking, I was like, so how many members of the family that we've met are ghosts? And that's the reason they're kind of snubbing her is because they didn't know her in life. You know, that kind of thing. Because uh, they, they made some kind of point of how these after images aren't really them, it's your memories of them. And how they acted in life. They can't really change or grow or develop new relationships. So I was thinking it was something along those lines. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was so clever figuring that one out. Uh, and then uh, completely taken aback uh, by the actual twist. Uh, which, uh, yeah. for those of you who stick, stuck around... Um, because you don't care about spoilers. The twist is that Rico herself was an after image the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't obvious <laughs> that we were dancing yeah. around it. I mean, we were, we were kind of talking around it. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this one didn't, I, I guess this is more of that lingering horror of, like, what it's like to yeah, deal. This one, was, this one was just more, for me, read more like a story about grief. Yeah. Which, like, can be horror. And, like, it had elements of horror. But, like, this one... I wouldn't have... This one was probably just, like... It was sad. It was yeah. depressing. I, but I wouldn't rank it as one of the freakier ones. Right. The next one. The next <laughs> one. That one. Uh, you said earlier you wanted to know if Junji Ito could freak me out. He did. <laughs> So what was the next one? Because of, yeah, of course you gave me this one. Um, this it's dissection, Sean. Uh, the story of a medical student, Tatsuro Kamada, who continuously runs into the eponymous dissection, Sean, a young woman from his childhood whose obsession with torturing and dissecting animals has turned into a fervent need to be vivisected. Uh, the real horror is, and the real horror is how she won't take no for an answer. I am, I'm squeamish. <laughs> uh, I would not, 
at school when we did dissections, I took, I found the girl in class who wanted to go to med school. I partnered with her and I said, I'll take notes. You can touch the fetal pigs that smell of formaldehyde. So I already do not like the subject of dissection. I do not enjoy human entrails and all of that. <laughs> and then there was this. And I was just going, hmm, hate all of this. <laughs> so um, for those of you who either um, can't guess what's going on here or uh, haven't had the pleasure of reading Dissection Chan on your own, um, Dissection Chan, like Steph said, uh, wants to be vivisected herself uh, while she's alive. It's kind of her fetish. And she keeps breaking into medical schools in body bags trying to get the students to accidentally uh, do their autopsy studies on her. Um, and come to find out she was kind of like a serial killer child. Uh, not like, she was definitely a serial killer child. Um, yeah, like, uh, like, you know, she's like, what's that awful thing that the homicidal triad? Yeah. She's checking all the boxes. Yeah. I have, I, that's probably not actually a real thing, just something I picked up from police procedurals, but like, she was checking the boxes. She definitely did. Um, and, uh, she especially, like, targets Tatsuro because they were childhood friends. And... You know, his deep, dark secret is actually that he used to help her with the dissections. Um, mm -hmm. He got her her first scalpel. Yeah. So, um, and in, her, in their childhood, when he finally stood up to her, is when she started having what she thought were stomach issues. Uh, and as we come to find out, it's her, it's her insides, like... Uh, churning and turning on her that is the reason she thinks that the only way she can get relief now is if she's dissected. Like, sort of as a karma punishment for what she put all these animals through over the years. <laughs> so, of course, uh, because there was no other way for this to have happened, clearly, um, Dissection Chan, when she is finally uh, vivisected and looked into by medical students. Her insides have been changed into the animals that they dissected when they were children. Clearly. Obviously. Um, yep. So, do you think that there was a deeper reading to this one, or do you think it was pure pulp horror? Um, it depends. Is is um? I kind of go does, either way on this. Does Junji does Junji Ito have strong opinions about animal rights? Uh, kind of. Then maybe. Otherwise, I'm just going. This feels very pulp horror. Uh, like I said, this one really did actually get to me. <laughs> I was like, what? I uh, did. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. So that one. I go back... That, this one worked. Yeah, I go back and forth on whether or not I thought it was... Uh, if it meant something like, you know, these deep, dark secrets we carry with us throughout our childhood and how that sort of changes us. 
But then, you know, sometimes I'll reread it and then I'm just like, no, I'm pretty sure he just wanted to draw this horrifying uh, cadaver uh, at the end. I think that was the whole purpose. <laughs> the, the cadaver was just a lot emotionally. <laughs> so, um, with that, we'll, uh, for Steph's sake, move on to the next one. Uh, oh boy, uh, this one. Um, we'll have some things to say about this one. Uh, Megami Nanakuse is the story of the famous and elusive author of the same name. The author is most known for giving the main characters of each of her stories a particular tick that sets them apart from anyone else in the story. And what qualifies as a tick can be anything from a snort to a pause to a pose to poor manners. Of course, when one of her adoring fans comes out to meet her, the real story of whether the author gets her inspiration from uh, turns out to be the real horror show. So um, we kind of have to deal with the big white elephant in the corner before we talk about any of the other stuff with this one. Um, so I try to give leeway to other cultures because I know that other cultures have different relationships with gender and transgenderism as a result. Uh, but this one, I think, pretty overtly qualifies as a transphobic story that is very hard to overcome because there's really no purpose to it. Um, other yeah, it's... Yeah. yeah. It was just really uncomfortable. Like like I said, um, the section Sean made me... It got to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one made me very uncomfortable. I admit I ended up kind of skimming it at times just because I really wasn't yeah. So, I, what, what's disappointing about this one for me, personally, um, on top of that, that's that's enough to be disappointing, but I it also feels like a betrayal because I feel like the bones of a really good, you know, horror parable are in there. You're dealing with ideas like parasocial relationships that people build with creators that they like, even though, you know, what makes somebody a good creator doesn't necessarily translate to their person um there's the uh there's the whole deal with um uh relating to how um we sort of fetishize or idealize um certain traits of people that is just how they exist or how they cope with things in their lives uh rather than you know accept them from what they are which is you know individual characteristics that shouldn't be any more or worse uh, than our everyday living. Um, because that's what Tix ended up being in this story, is she would capture uh, her fans who would come to her, and she would basically put them in an isolation cell until the only way they could cope with their isolation was to form some sort of tick. You know, the thing you do to cope with a stressful situation. And she would borrow those for her stories. Um, and uh, the main character, um, she tries to not develop any ticks to sort of, you know, be her final uh, F.U. to the author. And in turn, ends up becoming the ultimate tick. 
whatever that means. Um, but any of that did not need the story to be written in the way it was. In fact, it was more distracting yeah. from those things than it helped it. Uh, so, uh, D minus. Yep. <laughs> and yep, a, this was... It wasn't scary either. No, it... I really kind of went in there expecting to be more of like a cask of Amarillo type mm. thing. And then it just was that. And I was like, hmm. Great. So, uh, we will be sure to put trigger... We have to remember to do trigger warnings for oh, the top yeah, of the episode. For sure. Um, yeah. Disapp- yeah, I think really you, you, you... Yeah, I think really that's all we've got to say on that one. Disappointing. Transphobic. Not the best work. No. I also didn't think that, um, and maybe this is, uh, I'm sure because art's more subjective, um, people can disagree with this, but I don't think his best artwork was done for this one either. Like, it felt very haphazard for Junji Ito. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely... Yeah, just uh, significantly, significantly less good than the others. Okay. So the next one is Blackbird. Uh, Blackbird is the story of a hiker injured on the trail who is miraculously found weeks later still alive by other hikers. However, the mystery of how he came to be alive only grows stranger as the mysterious and horrifying woman begins breaking into his hospital room and forcing chewed meat from her mouth to his. Uh, what once kept him alive in the wilderness is now threatening to kill him in civilization as it is discovered that the mysterious meat is human. So yeah, this one was just kind of... Honestly, gave me some Greek mythology vibes here. Some, like, you know, harpies, so a bit bit of the Furies, and a bit of bit of Prometheus, honestly. It, it It's... I like this one a lot, I think, because it does something that um, we kind of talked about earlier when it comes to Junji Ito's work, which is that a lot of his stories feel like they're based on some sort of cultural myth or um, some folk story uh, that he grew up with, but they are monsters and stories of his own creation. And this feels like one of those, like, the Blackbird could be totally be some uh, mythologized beast in the Japanese countryside, and I would totally believe it. That, you know, this was a story that was handed down to people over generations. Uh, but it's a story he came up with, and it it's very uh, it's very horrifying and also sort of mysterious. Like, why does this bird um, become a woman? Why does the woman... Uh, save these people only to later murder them in order to save them. Because as it turns out, the meat that she feeds the people that she saves is from the people she saves in the future. So she, it's like um, help at the, uh, at the uh, behest of your future demise. So it's like, I can save you now but I will come back for it later. Yep, it's, uh, I, 
think some of the most effective art I okay. would say is in this story. For sure. Like, I definitely think that the art here conveys the horror of it all very well. Uh, also, again, probably one of my favorite ones. Yeah. It, it's just, it's a really good horror story to experience. Uh, especially going into it blind. Because I still remember the first time I read it. I hike a lot uh, with my dog. And I remember the first time I hiked after I had read The Blackbird. And I remember going, don't fall. <laughs> don't fall. Don't fall. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Morty would rescue you. Morty would probably uh, lick The Blackbird and thank her. Yeah, probably. All right, that takes us to the last one. The Whispering Woman begins with a wealthy father at the end of his rope. His daughter, Mayumi, has the unusual disposition of needing constant direction for every movement, for every moment of her waking life. An anxiety that is so severe it drives away every housekeeper, nurse, and assistant he hires for her. Just as it seems like Mayumi is doomed to suffer, the answer to their prayers comes in a mysterious woman named Mitsu, who seems to perfectly take up the task. Who Mitsu is, why she is so perfect for Mayumi, are questions that are asked, but what the father chooses to do with the answers leads to the real horror. So I think uh, this one is actually my favorite in this entire collection. It's the one I think of the most when... Uh, I'm just sort of, like, reflecting back on good horror stories. Uh, I think of The Whispering Woman a lot, and I'm not sure why it has brainwormed into me so hard. Uh, but it it just hits a lot of the, the horror uh, checklist for me. Um, and it's probably the... It's one of the few Junji Ito stories where... Um, there is a flaw that could have been avoided. A lot of the times, it's like, you know, it was totally circumstance or totally incidental that the people fell into uh, the circumstances that they did. But this one was not only avoidable, but the if the uh, father had chosen morality, he would have completely saved all of them uh, from a gruesome fate. And it was selfishness that got him out of it. Yeah, uh, like, I do, like, the, the because of just how I read this on Comixology, um, the comic uh, opened to the end, and so the last panel like the last page was the first thing I saw of this anthology series and it's just such a vivid image that I was just like hmm <laughs> wonder when <Right>? that's coming <laughs> in <laughs> so I think also one of the interesting things in this story is how it kind of dealt with this helplessness it was like um Mayumi is so crippled by her own sense of helplessness she can't even live like she's too scared of doing everything wrong that she can't do anything at all and um mitsu helps her by answering her questions and eventually 
it's to the point that Mayumi doesn't seem to be a character of her own at all anymore. Um, then you have Mitsu, who you learn she is the Mayumi in her life. Um, in her own life, she is completely helpless. She's in this situation she can't get out of. No one, including her boss, who supposedly likes her a lot, uh, will help her out of it. Nobody uh, will give her direction that she needs so that she can leave the abusive relationship she's in. And or help her get just, out. Yeah, just at all. Anything. Um, which is a helplessness that everyone is exploiting of these women to their own ends. Like, especially the father. The father, you start the story thinking, yeah, he wants to do anything he can to help his daughter. But what would have really helped his daughter is to possibly give her an environment where if she got something wrong, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> like, her world won't end if she makes a wrong choice every now and then. And that becomes more apparent when he learns that Mitsu is in a horrifically violent, abusive relationship and chooses not to help her because her being in that relationship makes her easier to control for him. And ultimately, it destroys all of them. Um, yeah. This one, and I, I've, I've reflected a lot on why this one sits with me so much. Um, and I, I am kind of worried about what it says about me that this, because so many of Junji Ito's stories are, you know, these cosmic horrors. There's not an explanation for uh, why we get into the circumstances we do. And one of the ones that sticks with me the most is one of the few that is kind of that almost uh, <laughs> Protestant. Uh, uh, you, cre you, you are are the architect of your own demise through your immorality and sin. And it's like there's one, there's like a, just a handful of Junji Ito stories that are like that, and one of them is my favorite, of course. Uh, <laughs> but I do, I feel like this one is the, probably the most overt in its commentary too. Like, I, I don't think there's too many other ways you can read the whispering woman. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I feel like that's a pretty good, feels like a good reading of that. Yeah. Well, uh, do you've got, have you got anything else to say about whispering woman? No, I think, you know, it's a fair, it was a very effective story. Like I said, the last image really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it was a good, I think it was a good one. All right. Well, with that, we'll go straight into our recs for tonight. So, um, I'll start off. Um, in the spirit of foreign horror and anthologies, I have to recommend for this week that you check out Chiller on Webtoon. Webtoon is an app built for um, web comics in a format that is more easily accessible to anyone with a phone. It's downloadable for free and it allows you to have access to literally hundreds of comics from all around the world, especially Korea. Um, Korean comics or manhwa are translated regularly on Webtoon for English fans. And one of my favorite experiments with the format goes to the anthology horror series Chiller. Chiller is full of 
devastatingly effective Korean webcomics on a variety of topics. It is uniquely adapted for the intimacy of reading a comic on your phone and making the stories a multimedia experience. Um, and it does this through a number of ways. Uh, sometimes you'll be scrolling and then suddenly you no longer have control of the scroll bar. Uh, sometimes your phone will start vibrating in the middle of a story. And occasionally, uh, music will start playing that just so happens to match the part of the comic you're at. Um, along with uh, several sound effects. So, um, being an anthology, there is a variety of talents on this one. Uh, it's not an anthology in the sense of what we just read for Junji Ito, which was a collection of one creator's works. Uh, this is an anthology of multiple people's uh, webcomics. Um, so there's a lot of different art artistic styles and different uh, subjects of stories. Um, but I personally found that it kind of added to the campfire feel of it all. Um, the quality varies a lot. There's some stories I didn't like very much. There were some stories I loved. Um, and it kind of just felt like sitting with a bunch of your friends around a campfire sharing stories, and doing your best to creep each other out. Um, if you like <laughs> scary stories and urban legends, you absolutely have to try Chiller for yourself. It was so much fun. Uh, I read it on uh, an airplane ride from Kentucky to Florida a few weeks ago, and I was hooked. I could not put it down. It was uh, just tons of fun. And I jumped more than once, uh, which I'm sure the people that sat on the plane with me were not fans of. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to cap off spooky season, I uh, decided to finally go and read uh, the Lawn Batman The Lawn Halloween. Uh, Batman The Lawn Halloween is the is sort of an unofficial sequel to Batman Year One. Well, it's sort of official, but it's not written by Frank Miller. It is instead written by Je uh, by Je by uh, it is instead writ written by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sully, and it is incredible. Uh, it's re it's a great story span covering the course of a year, examining the the the, the relationship between Jim Gordon, Bruce Wayne, and Harvey Dent as well as kind of expanding upon Bruce Wayne's relationship with Selina Kyle, the emergence of, of supervillains and strange occurrences in Gotham City, and the gradual uh, but tragic downfall of Harvey Dent and his inevitable but yet not quite inevitable emergence as Two-Face. Uh, and it especially is something that's really interesting yeah, because I feel like even more than Batman Year One, which we read and reviewed for this podcast, this one really plays into the uh, the godfatheriness of Go of Gotham's mafias and their crime families and the relationships of that. It was very interesting to see kind of this very clear homage, in many ways, like in. Um, for Gotham Central's introduction, Greg Rucka and Ed Brubaker talk about how Gotham's, Gotham City is so clearly New York. Uh, but in this one, we also get to see a little glimpse of, it's also Chicago. It's also any large city where the mafia and the mob play a role. 
and it was just really interesting to see that element in particular. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't necessarily like the art for Lawn Halloween as much as I did for uh, did for Batman Year One. Uh, but it really just can, was a really strong comic, very thematic, very spooky, and a very fun read overall. I read uh, the Absolute Batman edition, which was massive, so it, like it's just huge and really lets you uh, appreciate the story. And it's kind of, it was just a really fun read. I'm so glad you read it. It was really fun. I was really delighted to have read it. Well, it's like one of those things where we, we like, there's just always so much to read. Always. And so sometimes you need an, you sometimes you just need an excuse to tuck into one of the classic Batman stories. That's what this and podcast this is mine. for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support a, our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash yellowboxespodcast. Or you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help us reach more people. You can also subscribe or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want to share what makes you jump in the dark, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. Have you seen what the Ultimate Edition looks like for Batman Lawn Halloween? No. What does it look like? Oh, let me go get it, because okay. I got it from the library. Ooh. It's massive. Oh, wow. But yeah, it's like, you just get these huge spreads, and it's, like, really effective for stuff, like, for the for the two-page spreads. Mm-hmm. Oh, that looks really so good. really effective.